Section 8 of the Democracy of the Constitution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Democracy of the Constitution and Other Addresses and Essays by Henry Cabot Lodge. Chapter 8 The Democracy of Abraham Lincoln. Part 1. The Democracy of Abraham Lincoln. Footnote. Addressed to the Students of Boston University School of Law, March 14, 1913. In his History of Twenty-Five Years, Sir Spencer Walpole says, Yet perhaps of all the men born to the Anglo-Saxon race in the nineteenth century, Mr. Lincoln deserves the highest place in history. No man ever rose more quickly to the dignity of a great position. No man ever displayed more moderation in council, or more resolution in administration, or held a calmer or steadier course. Through the channel of difficulty and danger he kept his rudder true. This is high praise, but I think that we may go a step further. As the nineteenth century recedes into the past, it becomes constantly more apparent that the three great events of that period, the three great facts with a supreme influence upon Western civilization and upon the world, were the preservation of the American Union, the consolidation of Germany, and the unification of Italy. With these three events, the names of three men are indissolubly associated, Lincoln, Cavour, and Bismarck. They stand forth as embodying the cause of national unity in the United States, in Italy, and in Germany. They were the leaders, the directing minds in the mighty conflicts which produced the great results, and they loom ever larger and more distinct as the years pass by, like high mountain peaks, which at a distance separate themselves from the confused masses of the range from which they rise. I have mentioned these three commanding figures in the order in which, as it seems to me, they stand, and as I think they will stand when the final account is made up. But comparisons are needless. The greatness of Abraham Lincoln is admitted by the world, and his place in history is assured. Yet to us he has a significance and an importance which he cannot have to other people. It is impossible to translate a beautiful poem without losing in some degree the ineffable quality, the final perfection which it possesses in the language in which it was written. In its native speech, the verse is wedded to the form and the words and has tone in its voice which only those who are to the manner born can hear. So Lincoln, whose life rightly considered, was a poem, speaks to his own people as he does to no other. What he was, and what he did and said, is all part of our national life and of our thoughts as well. We see in him the man who led in the battle which resulted in a united country, and which we have watched his crescent fame as it has mounted ever higher with the incessant examination of his life and character. No record has ever leaped to light by which he could be shamed. Apart from all comparisons, it is at least certain that he is the greatest figure yet produced by modern democracy, which began its onward march at the little bridge in Concord. If ever a man lived who understood and loved the people to whom he gave his life, Lincoln was that man. In him no one has a monopoly. He is not now the property of any sect or any party. 
his fame is the heritage of the people of the united states and as stanton said standing by his deathbed he belongs to the ages for all these reasons it seems to me in these days of agitation and disquiet when the fundamental principles upon which our government rests and has always rested are assailed that nothing could be more profitable and more enlightening than to know just what lincoln's opinions were as to democracy and the true principles of free government i am well aware that objection may be made to lincoln as an authority for our guidance of the same character as the one brought against the framers of the constitution which is that he died nearly half a century ago and that therefore however excellent he was in his own day and generation he is now out of date as a guide in public questions because all conditions have so completely changed it is quite true that lincoln like washington never saw a telephone an automobile or a flying machine and that economic conditions as well as those of business and finance have been radically altered but this is really an inept objection because the subject upon which we seek to know his thoughts concerns the relation of human nature to certain forms and principles of government among men most of which were as familiar to the speculations of plato and aristotle as they are to us some of which are older than recorded history while the very youngest have been known discussed and experimented with for centuries so i think we may dismiss the suggestion that lincoln is antiquated and realize that upon the principles of free government and the capabilities of human beings in that direction he is an authority as, as ancient as the greek philosophers and as modern as the last young orator who has just discovered that this very comparative world is not abstractly and ideally perfect what then were the thoughts and opinions of abraham lincoln as to the principles upon which free and ordered popular government should rest he alone can tell us no one is vested with the authority to proclaim to us what lincoln thought or believed upon any subject there is no high priest at that altar to utter oracles which no one else can question and which he alone can interpret lincoln's convictions and opinions are to be found in only one place in his own speeches and writings which like his fame belong to his countrymen and to mankind fortunately we need not grope about to discover his meaning few men who have ever lived and played a commanding part in the world have had the power of expressing their thoughts with greater clearness or in a style more pellucid and direct than lincoln of him it may be truly said that his statements are demonstrations you will search far before you will find a man who could state a proposition more irresistibly leaving no avenue of escape or could use a more relentless logic than the president of the civil war we feel as we read his life that he had in him the nature of a poet the imagination which pertains to the poetic nature and which was manifested not only in what he said and did but in his intuitive sympathy with all sorts and conditions of men combined with these attributes of the poetic genius which are as rare as it is impalpable were qualities seldom found in that connection he was an able lawyer and had the intellectual methods of the trained legal mind he was also the practical man of affairs as well as the great statesman looking at facts with undazzled eyes and moulding men and events to suit his purpose 
There is no occasion for guesswork or assertion or speculation in regard to him when he turned away from the visions of the imagination to confront and deal with the hard problems of life and government, never to any man harder than they were to him. Let us then examine his writings and speeches, and see what light they throw upon the questions now subject to public discussion, which relate to the Constitution of the United States, and to the principles upon which that great instrument was based. Let me remind you on the outset that I am going to deal only with the fundamental principles of government embodied in the Constitution, and not at all with the many provisions which simply establish the machinery or mechanism of government. It is important to keep this distinction in mind, for it is frequently lost sight of, and the ensuing confusion is deleterious to intelligent comprehension. The mechanism of government may be very important, and a change in it may be either beneficent or unfortunate, but it is not vital. Whereas, if the fundamental principles are altered, weakened, or abandoned, the whole structure will come crashing to the ground. For example, to change the method of electing senators may be harmful or beneficial but it is only a change of mechanism but to abandon the equal representation of the states in the senate is a vital and destructive change of principle for the extinction of the states would mean the extinction of our governmental system and would involve in its ruin the basic principle of local self-government the number of judges in the Supreme Court is a matter of machinery and expediency, but the appointment and tenure of those judges embody principles which go to the very root of all ordered and stable government. It is on questions of principle alone that I would seek to learn the opinions of Lincoln, and before entering upon that inquiry, let me define the questions upon which it seems to me well that we should seek his guidance at this time they are two in number representative government as involved in the agitation in favor of the compulsory initiative and referendum and the independence of the courts which is at stake in the demand for the recall of judges and the review of judicial decisions by popular vote and in an attempt to set forth lincoln's opinions upon these questions it would be impossible to consider the arguments for or against these two propositions, for each one by itself requires a discussion of great length and elaboration. I shall make no effort to show that the compulsory initiative and referendum, so loudly demanded in the name of the people, is in essence a plan to secure not the rule of the people, but arbitrary government by small, highly organized, and irresponsible minorities of voters nor shall i try to show that the judicial recall and the review of judicial decisions by popular vote would not only like the compulsory initiative and referendum establish the power of highly organized minorities among the voters but would also give us servile and subservient courts controlled by an outside force and therefore incapable of honestly interpreting the law and doing justice between man and man I will, however, pause long enough to point out that both schemes lead consciously or unconsciously to the same result. If successful, they would bring us to a government composed of the executive and the voters. It is inevitable that this should be the case, 
for if you reduce to impotency the representative and judicial branches of the government, nothing remains but the executive and the voters. The last conspicuous example of this kind of government was the Second Empire in France. By a vote of over seven millions to two hundred and fifty thousand, Napoleon was made emperor. On May 8, 1870, his constitutional changes, continuing the empire on a more liberal basis, were sustained by a vote of over seven millions to a million and a half, and within six months after this immense expression of popular approval, his empire had crumbled into ruins, and he was himself a prisoner in Germany. The result of this form of direct democracy was not happy in that instance, at least and at bottom the question is between direct democracy on the one hand and self-limited democracy on the other the first is very old the second very new dating on a large scale at least only from our own constitution of seventeen eighty seven which lord acton speaks of as an achievement in the way of self-limitation which man had up to that time regarded as impossible I have no intention of discussing the merits or demerits of the two systems, but the fact that direct democracy is old and our self-limited democracy is new must not be forgotten. When it is proposed to emasculate representative government, as was done by the Third Napoleon, or to take from the courts their independence, it may be a change for the better, as its advocates contend, because almost anything human is within the bounds of possibility but it is surely and beyond any doubt a return from a highly developed to a simpler and more primitive stage of thought and government a system of government which consists of executive and people is probably the very first ever attempted by men among gregarious animals we find the herd and its leader and that was the first form of government among primitive men, if we may trust the evidence of those tribes still extant in a low state of savagery, who alone can give us an idea of the social and political condition of prehistoric man. Mr. Andrew Lang, in Custom and Myth, to illustrate a very different subject, says, page 237, even among those democratic paupers, the Fuegians, the doctor-wizard of each party has much influence over his companions. Among those other democrats, the Eskimo, a class of wizards called the Angakuts, become a kind of civil magistrates, because they can cause fine weather and can magically detect people who commit offenses. Thus the germs of rank, in these cases, are sown by the magic which is fetishism in action try the zulus the heaven is the chief's he can call up the clouds and storms hence the sanction of his authority in new zealand every rongatira has a supernatural power if he touches an article no one else dares to approach it for fear of terrible supernatural consequences a head chief is tabooed an inch thick and perfectly unapproachable magical power abides in and emanates from him by this superstition an aristocracy is formed and property the property at least of the aristocracy is secured among the red indians as schoolcraft says priests and jugglers are the only persons that make war and have a voice in the sale of the land mr e w robertson says much the same thing about early scotland 
if odin is not a god with his gifts of a medicine man and did not owe his chieftainship to his talent for dealing with magic he is greatly maligned the irish brehans also sanctioned legal decisions by magical devices afterward condemned by the church among the zulus the atonia spirit dwells with the great man he who dreams is the chief of the village the chief alone can read in the vessel of divination the Kaneka chiefs are medicine men the chiefs here described derive their authority from the popular belief in their magic powers but the germ of government which is apparent is that of the people and executive out of these wizards and medicine men these chiefs protected by the taboo came the king as fraser shows in his early history of the kingship the machinery was constantly elaborated and perfected as the centuries passed and the king steadily absorbed more power as was inevitable but the system remained in essence the executive and the people on the other hand we may study experiments in direct democracy in athens and in rome more than two thousand years ago and at a later time in some of the medieval italian cities this examination will reveal the fact that representative government on a large scale is a modern development originating in england and also that while people began long ago to place limitations on the once unrestrained power of the king or the kingship it was in our constitution that a people for the first time put limitations upon themselves which has hitherto been considered an evidence of unusual intelligence and of high civilizations i have ventured upon this digression because it seems to me important to emphasize the fact that these efforts to get rid of representative government and the independence of the judiciary whether good or bad are not attempts to advance from what we now have but to revert to an earlier and more primitive forms of social and political organizations this point of reversion to earlier forms so far as it relates to the courts has never been more vividly and strongly stated than by mr roosevelt in an article upon the vice-presidential candidates which he contributed to the review of reviews in november eighteen ninety six page two hundred ninety five the men who object to what they style government by injunction are as regards the essential principles of government in hearty sympathy with their remote skin-clad ancestors who lived in caves fought one another with stone-headed axes and ate the mammoth and woolly rhinoceros they are interesting as representing a geological survival but they are dangerous whenever there is the least chance of their making the principles of this ages buried past living factors in our present life they are not in sympathy with men of good minds and sound civic morality furthermore the chicago convention attacked the supreme court again this represents a species of atavism that is of recurrence to the ways of thought of remote barbarian ancestors savages do not like an independent and upright judiciary they want the judge to decide their way and if he does not they want to behead him the populists experience much the same emotions when they realize that the judiciary stands between them and plunder 
Let us now examine what Lincoln said or wrote and try to determine whether he stood for the new or the old, for self-limited or for direct and unlimited democracy, with a special reference to the two points of government by representation and judicial independence. On one most memorable occasion, Lincoln told the world what the government was for, which the people whom he led were pouring out their treasure and offering up their lives. I will not use my own words to describe what he then said, but those of an impartial English historian. One of them, these beautiful cemeteries on the field of Gettysburg, will be near to Anglo-Saxons for all time, because it inspired the famous two-minute speech, which is perhaps the most perfect example in our language of what such a speech on such an occasion should be. I will read to you the Gettysburg speech, thus characterized by Sir Spencer Walpole. Only a portion relates to our subject, but that speech cannot be read or repeated too often by Americans, and there never has been a time, since the hour of its utterance, when it should be more reverently and thoughtfully pondered by all who love their country than in these days now passing over us. It was on the 19th of November, 1863, a little more than four months after the great battle, that Lincoln spoke as follows in dedicating the National Cemetery at Gettysburg. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created free and equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation, or any nation so conceived and so dedicated, can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as the final resting place for those who here gave their lives that the nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this, but in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. The last sentence is the one which concerns us here. What government did he refer to in those closing lines, as the one for which the soldiers died, and to the preservation of which he asked his countrymen to dedicate themselves? It was the government of the United States. It could have been no other. His own title was President of the United States. The uniform which the soldiers wore and the flag which they followed were the uniform and the flag of the United States of America. He defined this government to which he gave his life as a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. 
This famous definition, familiar in our mouths as household words, was applied to the government of the United States as created, established, and conducted by and under the Constitution adopted in 1789. With the exception of the three war amendments, and that just adopted establishing the income tax, it is the same Constitution and the same government today that it was in November 1863. Lincoln thought it a popular government. He did not regard it as a government by a president, or by a congress, or by judges, but as a government of, by, and for the people. And in his usual fashion, he stated his proposition so clearly, and with such finality, that there is no escape from his meaning. We might well be contented to stop here and, accepting Lincoln's definition, stand upon his broad assertion of the character of our government and look with suspicion upon those who, in the name of the people, seek to tear down that constitution, which has given us what he declared to be, in the fullest sense, a government of the people. But it is neither necessary nor desirable to stop with the Gettysburg speech, for it is important to learn, if we can, in more detail, what Lincoln thought of the limitations established by the Constitution, with a special reference to this principle of representation and the power of the courts. Very early in his career, when he was not yet twenty-seven years of age, he said in an address before the Young Men's Lyceum at Springfield, Illinois, on January 27, 1837, We find ourselves under the government of a system of political institutions, conducting more essentially to the ends of civil and religious liberty than any of which the history of the former times tells us. Theirs was the task, and nobly they performed it, to possess themselves and through themselves us, of this goodly land, and to uprear upon its hills and its valleys a political edifice of liberty and equal rights. Tis ours only to transmit these, the former unprofaned by the foot of an invader, the latter undecayed by the lapse of time and untorn by usurpation. To the latest generation that fate shall permit the world to know. At what point, then, is the approach to danger to be expected? I answer, if it ever reach us, it must spring up among us. It cannot come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. In these sentences we see at once that the great style of the Gettysburg Address and of the Second Inaugural is still undeveloped that the power of expression so remarkable in later years has not yet been found but the conviction as to the character of our government which attained its final form at gettysburg is here and in closing words warns us that destruction of our government can come only from ourselves demand our attention now as insistently as when they were uttered by an obscure young man in illinois looking far into the future only to be passed over unheeded by a careless world such then was lincoln's belief in the character of our government at the outset of life and such it continued to the end as i shall show later upon the two particular points which we now have under consideration he had owing to the circumstances of his time a good deal to say about the courts and very little in express form about representative government because nobody in his day questioned the representative system 
but representative government rests upon certain broad principles in regard to which lincoln spoke clearly and decisively the basic theory of representative government is that the representative body represents all the people and that a majority of that body represents a majority of all the people to the majority in congress the power of action is committed and so it is guarded as to exclude so far as human ingenuity can do it any opportunity for control of the government by an organized minority either among the voters or their representatives it is these very provisions for securing majority rule which have led to the development of such devices as the compulsory initiative and referendum in order that organized minorities may gain a power of control which they could not obtain under a purely representative government having thus established majority rule through the representative system the framers of the constitution with their deep-rooted distrust of uncontrolled power anywhere then proceeded to put limitations upon the power of the majority they were well aware that a majority of the voters at any given moment did not necessarily represent the enduring will of the people they knew equally well that in the end the real will of the people must be absolute but they desired that there should be room for deliberation and for second thought and that the rights of minorities and individuals should be so far as possible protected and secured hence the famous limitations of the constitution i need not rehearse them all the most vital are those embodied in the first ten amendments which constitute a bill of rights the rights of men or human rights and any violation of those rights is forbidden to congress and to the majority as further restraints upon the majority they gave the executive veto which raised the necessary majority for action to two-thirds while upon the courts they conferred by implication opportunity to declare in specific cases any law to be in violation of the principles laid down by the constitution End of Part 1, Section 8